Did he scream? Mm. Is that a, a dog? dog? It's a dog. <laughs> <laughs> I couldn't tell at first. Hello and welcome to Book Retorts. I'm Sam. I'm Danielle. And this is the podcast about sharing your weird media with your friends who don't know what you're talking about. But I do know what you're talking about. Do you really? We're going to find out. (laughs) Because we are doing part three of the 1996 Dan Simmons novel Endymion. Yes, finally, we're back. For the moment. (laughs) For the moment. Until we're distracted again. This has been the most arduous series to get through of of the Hyperion epic we've been doing. Well, it doesn't help that you decided to start it before all the holiday season stuff, Sam. Was either that or waiting for another year until it was all over. Went to January. Just January. (laughs) Yeah, maybe. But that was still been like eight months, right? I don't know, Sam. It's been eons. (laughs) <laughs> time <laughs> uncountable no meaning with Iberion. <laughs> well that's actually true of the book itself so <laughs> exactly <laughs> well speaking of time danielle there was a last time can you summarize for us what happened in the last episode so we can get caught up for this one okay sure mm-hmm. sam i would love to <laughs> <laughs> don't sound okay. too enthusiastic there's a man named endivian and it's not the city endivian Raul, 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 yeah. It, it's, Raul. Well, how he do you describes know it's Raul? as Paul. He describes it as Paul with an R. Okay, but Paul and Raul are really not names. <laughs> that, like, <laughs> Raul is that a name? It is a your name, Danielle. <laughs> it is really hard for me not to say Raul. Okay, Raul uh, and Demian, but I'm going to call him Endymion. Okay. And he uh, gets tasked by Seder guy Martin Salinas. <laughs> We're back to part one now, okay. No, he gets tasked. That's where it kind of left <laughs> off. He gets tasked to go find what's-her-face, Ania, from the time tombs because she's supposed to leave them, maybe as a child, maybe not. And then the church is also after her, correct? That is the general gist, yes. Okay. So he shows up at the time tombs. There's maybe stuff that happens before that. <laughs> <laughs> he plans his trip. There's a lot that goes on to him getting to the time tomb, so it's mostly him just going through the labyrinth on the hawking mat, so you can skip right. all that. So, And he agrees because uh, Martin tells me he's going to be a hero. He wants to be a hero. He it's wants to be a hero like a so bad. Her- it's like a reverse Hercules. You mean the movie or the myth? Cause- movie. <laughs> yeah, I figured. <laughs> so the Hercules really being like, I want to be a hero, and the, and the satyr being like, no, absolutely not. The satyr's like, hey, you're going to be a hero, and he's like, eh, okay. <laughs> There's a lot of parallels between the Hercules movie with the Danny DeVito satyr and this mo- <laughs> this book with the also equally kind of filthy satyr. Exactly. In my head, it's just Danny DeVito. Um, okay. <laughs> he so- would make, if they ever made a Hyperion TV series or movie, they could do Danny DeVito as Martin Salinas and I would buy it. Yeah, I'd buy it too. So anyway, Danny DeVito talks him into going and so he decides <laughs> to show up. At the time tombs to rescue Ania, and Ania pops out, and she's with the Shrike. Yeah, our favorite bits character is back bits briefly. And cats and, bits and, cats. and he immediately wrecks <laughs> havoc, uh, even though wrecks havoc on whom? On the church people. Right. Okay. So there is a massive military force from the packs there yes. to try to capture Ania, led by. Uh, don't know his name. <laughs> Father Captain Federico de Soya. Oh, yeah, that's supposed to remember that. Yeah, yeah, you are. <laughs> <laughs> okay, well, de Soya's there, and he's supposed to get the girl, and uh, Endymion's there, and he's supposed to get the girl, and the girl's like, Strike, bad, don't kill everybody. But Strike's like, I don't care, and he went and kills everybody, and it's great. <laughs> and then he takes India, and I don't remember what happens after that. What happens Who after takes India? What's his face? Uh, Endymion. Don't they okay. get together? <laughs> yeah. <laughs> so, I mean, there's some more stuff about DeSoya receiving his assignment from the church higher-ups and a bunch of other things about him meeting some other people, his crew of Swiss guards led by Sergeant Gregorius, which is a name you will not recognize, but you should. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. And yes, Rawl shows up. He gets Ania on the hockey mat. They meet with a Betic who has brought the ship, the console oh, yeah. ship. 
That's to right. spirit them away, and they escape from the packs, which are still in chaos after the Shrike's attack, which is mostly friendly fire, if you recall. Yes, because the Shrike's doing peekaboo, yeah. and then they all shoot at each other. <laughs> yeah. Hilarious. <laughs> Pretty much. Yeah, there you go. Exactly right. <laughs> and so Ania and Rawl zoom off of the ship towards the Parvati system. Do they and, meet up with the packs at some point? Well, ahead of them is Father Captain DeSoya, who took his super archangel ship. Angel ship, yeah. The Raphael there ahead of them. And is now waiting for them to arrive to capture them once again. Dun, dun, dun. That was remarkably better than your previous Yay! attempt. Yay! <laughs> Good job, V. Of course, that was like a very limited plot. There wasn't a whole lot going on there, but there was an actual plot. So that helped. So that is something that is, I think, a theme of these latter Hyperion novels. Is The first ones are very plot heavy, and the latter ones are not. They're equally as long, but as you might have guessed <laughs> from our episode lengths, most of the plot is... Just sort of musings and philosophy and a lot of introspection, which is fine, but it's not particularly – doesn't make good podcast fodder, I should say. <laughs> it's okay. The plot is weird enough to make up for it. Yeah. So I'm trying to focus on what little plot there is, which is not just like – I'm not saying it's a bad thing. This ratio just makes for a more mm, focused, I guess, episode from us. <laughs> <laughs> I'm sure some of our listeners love that. Well, speaking of the plot, we open with Rawl and his crew on the ship. It's a long trip, I think like three weeks or something. And for the first week, they just mostly sleep and, you know, bum around. Because what else do you do on a long trip, I guess? That's true. Eventually, Rawl and the others raid the library on the ship. And he finds a convenient book all about the River Tethys and the various planets it runs through. Is that the one that went through all the different yes. planets or whatever? Exactly right. The River Tethys and the Grand Concourse were those what made the World Web a web. Okay. So he muses on how, due to comlinks and you know people having instant access to all the information of the data sphere, that people in the hegemony were largely illiterate. Like they never bothered to learn to read. But for some reason, when the church came to power, they were all about literacy. That's so, good, I guess. <laughs> yeah. I don't... <laughs> There's no reason given for that. That seems crazy. I don't know if they'd want to empower the masses. That's what I'm saying. Like, you know, why is literacy their first priority? What seems do I like know? it's going to backfire. I'm not a theocratical dictator, so what do I know? Though I could be. I was just going to say that. Thanks, like, Danielle. But... <laughs> Give them the opportunity. <laughs> You beat me back a millisecond. I was opening my mouth. <laughs> <laughs> yes. Um, so Ania also read the library and she grabs Martin's book, The Dying Earth, because of course she does. Why not? Why not? Rawl asks her what she believes happened to old Earth. And she's like, uh, the Technocore stole it, dude. It's in the Hercules cluster. <laughs> they flew it into space. But they teleported it through a Farcaster <laughs> portal into the space. It all comes back to our very first episode, doesn't it, Daniel? <laughs> Always and forever. <laughs> you would not think that much sci-fi would have driving planets into space, but apparently it does. <laughs> it's got to be a theme, like this whole like spaceship Earth thing, right? <laughs> it's an amazing amount of things we can reference back to that first episode. It was a good choice. I'm pleased we kicked off with that. <laughs> anyway, she she reminds him that her mother and her father discovered that when they visited old Earth or something during their investigation of his murder. Mm -hmm. Rawl then asks her about her in-utero conversation with her father. He's like, what did you guys even talk about? What was it like? And she's like, oh, he was still... Wait, was that established fact? Or I thought that was just like a... No, hundred percent established. Because <laughs> the last time wasn't like that was the theory that was put forth. Is that what? No, so, that's the, what so the church suspects that's what makes her like evil is because she has been influenced by the Technocore from in utero from her father, the cyberid connected to the Technocore. Keats. Keats. Yeah, but Keats Junior, yeah, Junior. One of them. One of the numerous Keats. <laughs> But it is an established fact that she did indeed converse with her father and that he was still connected to the Technocore and that she was also then in contact with the Technocore while in utero. So she is getting like – think like in Dune, how Paul Atreides' little sister 
when the mother drinks the water or she like gets the baby like mind opened in the womb kind of thing. Uh huh. Uh huh. It's that kind of thing, except instead of magic water, it's magic technocore. Excellent. And that is a real stretch of a reference for people who don't like sci fi. <laughs> anyway, she tries to explain it, but ends up just saying it's complicated. Which it is, and it tells me the author does not want to try to figure out how it works. <laughs> it's like, um, I, I'm not, no longer going to put stuff on paper. <laughs> I have thought later, and I'll get to that, about what things Simmons chooses to spend lots of time explaining, what things he just decides aren't worth explaining, and I largely disagree. <laughs> <laughs> I think it's probably because he knows he doesn't have explanations for some of those things. I mean, sure. But then why waste time explaining things that are irrelevant? Just so like, I could explain it, but I chose not to. It's also revealed that while, while the Keats persona did occupy the ship computer for a while, the persona left the ship sometime around when the console died, which is partly probably why the ship has amnesia. Where did it go? Nobody knows. It may or may not exist anymore. That's all we know. Oh, okay. Ania also knows that the core still exists, despite the destruction of the Farcaster network, because she just knows it. She claims that she has... Talked to her father after the Farcaster Network went down, so the core had to still be there because his persona exists in the core. But I thought the whole point of the story in the first Hyperion book was that he had to download his consciousness out of the core so he could go to Hyperion where there was no data sphere. So I don't know what's going on. What didn't what's his face also get blown up by Uman or something? Hmm. That Killed. was the other one. <laughs> too many. Sam, no there's too many. No way. No, no, I'm wrong. That was... That was his, her dad, right? That was her... Hmm. I'm... <laughs> <laughs> that's a good point. Uh, that was a different one. Because uh, I was hmm. Johnny or whatever his name was. Yeah. Yeah. You, no, you're right, Daniel. You're right. Uh, yeah, I, I, <laughs> right. <laughs> yeah, no, you're right. There are two reasons why this makes no sense, Daniel. But Listeners so, that have read Hyperion. <laughs> No, okay. This is what it is. Oh, I remember now. Okay. okay. This is the weird part. So, here oh, this is, is what... the weird part, Sam. Okay. So, okay. I think I, 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 I may be giving this book too much credit, but we'll find out. So, what I'm guessing happened is Ron was pregnant for a while before the events at the Time Tombs. So, okay. that was when Ania had her conversation, then he later got murdered by Uman. Sure. And then the other Keats persona, Severn. He is the one who came and uh, occupied the ship. So Ania is just assuming all Keats are her father. Keats all the way down. Yeah, basically. So that was confused me because she refers to her father, Johnny, but she's also assuming that the other Keats persona is her father. Like she's just saying, oh, they're both my father. They're both Keats cybers. So it's but the same. They're not. They're, I agree. <laughs> I, I don't think that's I'm going to argue with her on this one. <laughs> they're, they are physically different people. With different consciousnesses that were somehow also connected through magic. And that's why he, the Severn experienced everything the other. It doesn't matter. Then is the original Keats also her father? I mean, I think she does. Yes, because in the previous section, she describes like the poems my father wrote. Right. Which is like. She's crazy not, pants, McGee. Yeah. yeah okay. <laughs> that's what got me off through a loop. She's just claiming that every incarnation of Keats is simultaneously her father. Yeah. Uh, I mean, there's maybe an argument for it, but it's very minimal. With the gestalt Keats entity as her father. <laughs> All right. Boy, that was a long way to go for the first paragraph of this explanation. Sorry, continue on. No, I'm glad we got there because I was confused. <laughs> anyway, I have no idea what's going on with the Keatses or where they are or who's whom, so I'm just going to skip it. But also, she has communicated with the core directly, and she says she's done that as recently as uh, this morning. So, What? This is not elaborated on. <laughs> is it ever? I mean, is it just thrown out there and never mentioned again? I do not know. <laughs> so I really hope it's elaborated on. Otherwise, Dan Simmons, you got some serious things to answer for. So they like blew up the whole thing to get rid of the Technicore, right? Yes, but apparently it didn't. That's unfortunate for them. So, so is the Technicore just like chilling? I don't what, know, Danielle. What have they been doing for hundreds of years? <laughs> Talking to Ania, apparently. <laughs> I I have a sense, and this might be giving something away, but I feel like there is some double dealing going on here with the church and the Technocore and Ania. Like, I feel that the Pope is in contact with the Technocore as well, which is why he knows everything about Ania. I mean, he has to figure it out somehow. But I could be making that up and trying to and trying to like make this book make too much sense. We'll find out. 
So days pass, they read, Aenea plays the piano, there are some hijinks around games, like Aenea turning off the gravity in the ship so everyone floats around, and they play a bunch of <laughs> zero-G games, like soccer and billiards and zero-G and etc., etc. But one night, Rawl finds Aenea crying in her bed over how scared she is about the future and how much she misses her mother. So the book is trying to emphasize that she's still just a child, even though she's a Masonic she's child. or not. <laughs> yeah, yeah. So... It's like, I guess it's trying to make it her empathetic, but like, it's just an adult in a child's body, I think, still. Even though it's trying to differentiate that, it doesn't feel like she is just a child who has some burdens. Maybe it's a mix, Sam. Yeah. You know what? I may be simplifying things too much. Maybe she is a complicated individual, like all people. <laughs> Back with the Soya, he and the Swiss guards have been running drills, simulating capturing Ania and the ship under different conditions. So in the one that we see, they blast their way into the ship. And here I'm like, wait a minute. How do they know what the interior looks like? Like, down to the bookshelves, they know what the whole ship is like to simulate it. Well, it was what's-his-face, the consoles, right? Yeah. Is there a record of that somewhere? So they mentioned having, like, the ship plans, like, the design, but, like, does that include the decor? I don't know. Maybe that's just what it looked like back in the day. It still looks like that. Maybe. I just think it's very unlikely that, like, after the collapse of civilization, things like the interior designs of ships and their decoration would be important documents that'd be easily accessible. Absolutely agree. And also, I would... I would hate to do training in a space that's not actually going to look like that. It could look completely different inside. Right. So, like, it feels very much convenient, I should say, <laughs> that they know exactly what the ship looks like and can train perfectly for their incursion. Also, it doesn't matter, which I'll get to in a moment. Anyway, at one point, the Shrike shows up on the ship and they kill it with a death wand and capture the girl. Success! It's never going to happen. Well, Sergeant Gregorius is like, I don't think we can kill the Shrike with a death wand. That seems unrealistic <laughs> to me. I'm on his side for that. Yeah, so good for him. But also, if you recall, he's the one at the end of the last chapter who, who said he had like, a plan for yeah, the Shike. He and was like, going to take him down. Then he's all like, I don't think we can kill the Shike with a death wand. So what was your plan, Gregorius? <laughs> if you're like, I got a plan. Oh, we can't kill the Shrike. I have no plan. Like, <laughs> make up your mind. He was just talking out of his butt. Probably. Either way, it's T minus eight hours till the girl arrives. So it's time to prepare for the real deal. Back with Aenea, her plan to escape the Desoya trap is that she has no plan. She's going to wing it. She just hasn't been thinking about it. Basically, Rawl just assumes that this 12-year-old child will come up with all the plans and just letting her handle everything. I mean, he's a true hero. Right, exactly. <laughs> and he actually addresses this later, so that's not just us thinking that. That is, Rawl has his, his moment of self-reflection later, but here it's still very evident that he is... Mm, Useless? <laughs> <laughs> to be fair, he just got conscripted by an old, like, Herculean Danny DeVito. So what does he know? <laughs> Herculean Danny DeVito, not a satirian Danny DeVito. I was just clarifying that it was Danny DeVito in a Herculean role. Oh, like he was making a Herculean effort to be a satyr? <laughs> no, that he was from his role in Hercules, Sam. <laughs> I know. <laughs> it's already a, an adjective, Danielle. <laughs> I was bending it to my will. Yes. Yeah, that's how English works, pretty much. You make up the rules as you go. I mean, kind of. <laughs> yeah. I was not being facetious. <laughs> so anyway, every time that Rawl tried to bring up the plan, to like, hey, Ania, let's make a plan, she would just demure. So he just did nothing. <laughs> <laughs> he also says that she would distract him by asking him questions and says, quote, the children and teenagers I'd encountered over the years had never shown this much curiosity or ability to listen, which is dumb. Because anyone who's ever been pestered incessantly by a child with questions knows how curious they all are. <laughs> that is like the primary characteristic of children, that they are all about absorbing information and learning as fast as possible. That's true. So he's like, oh, she's a special child because she's a curious child. That's a unique trait that no other child has. Maybe Dan Simmons has never met a child. It is distinct possibility from this <laughs> is what I'm learning. <laughs> Rawl did manage to extract a little info from her in that she came through the Sphinx not only to escape the packs, but to seek her destiny. Do you know what her destiny is to become Danielle? Um, Endymion's lover. Well, unfortunately, <laughs> yes. But besides that, more more broadly. Uh, Jesus. Not quite that, but <laughs> more broadly, Daniel. Uh, the chosen one. No, her destiny is to become an architect. 
an architect of life and design? Nope, of buildings. Of buildings. (laughs) (laughs) Is that more broad than Jesus? (laughs) I don't know, Danielle, but that was her destiny to become an architect. I mean, somebody's got to be destined to be an architect or we'd have no buildings. I suppose she she dreamed that the architect she wanted to learn from lived in this era. So that's why she came through time <laughs> to get to do an apprenticeship, an architect apprenticeship. <laughs> well, apparently she's going to make some very important buildings. It'd be pretty uh, funny if she didn't, though. Yeah. I don't think she makes a single building. <laughs> Maybe she wrong. will in the future. <laughs> I don't remember. Maybe she does. Who knows? So where is this architect teacher of hers? No clue. Somewhere in the former web world. That's why she wants to travel the river Tethys to find him or Wait, her. So she knows that she is destined to be with this architect and potentially to become an architect, but she has no idea where this architect is. How does she know so much and so little at the same time? Exactly. <laughs> that seems not true. <laughs> she knows exactly as much as the plot needs her to know and not one thing more. <laughs> Simmons, what are you doing? <laughs> <laughs> And he doesn't explain uh, that, does he? Um, not yet. I think, <laughs> again, her mystical powers are mystical. Plot, man. So anyway, as they're so close to arriving at the Parvati system, they finally sit down to hash out a plan. And Nia has dreamed that DeSoya will be there first, impossible seeming as that is. So Rawl suggests that maybe the Shrike could help out again. But Nia's all, I can't control it. And I wish I hadn't killed all those people. But either way, she hasn't dreamed the Shrike will help out, so it doesn't matter. So he's like, I want the Shrike to come and kill everybody for us. Well, he's like, you know, hey, the Shrike could distract them all enough for us to escape again, basically. At the very least. But if their ship is faster than theirs, they'd have to, like, escape, escape. No, no. Their ship... So I should be clear about this, because it's confusing. The console ship is faster in regular space. Like, it it has a faster non-C-plus speed than the other pack ships but the pack ships are faster through the hawking space okay then. remind me how they knew where Nia was going to end up because they well they saw where they departed from and matched the trajectory basically it's kind of like if you see how they translate what heading they're on when they go to hawking space you can determine where they're going where they're going to come out of it yeah okay so and there's no way to change that once you're in it? Yes. As far as I know. Again, it's not quite <laughs> like Star Trek where you can go into warp and then just drop out again. As far as I know, once you're in, you're in, I guess. <laughs> Forever. <laughs> Which seems like a bad design, but what do I know like about really faster than light travel? <laughs> like, you're committed. Oh, did the planet explode? Too bad. <laughs> again, it's all very wishy-washy. It's like, just trust us. They figured it out. Okay, sure. So Ania eventually asks the ship for ideas, but the ship's AI is like useless, just goes on about how it can morph into itself, like make random openings in its hole, for instance, make an airlock appear anywhere, etc. This, however, does give Ania an idea. So she tells the others, but we don't get to learn what that idea is because, you know, books. They do love to do that. Yeah. But Rawl is all like, nah, that'll never work. So, you know, good plan. Back with the Soya, the ship finally appears in the system. The Raphael rushes up to it and they pull alongside so Gregorius and his crew can jump across to like get inside the ship and do the boarding. But suddenly Aenea calls the Soy on the radio and addresses him by name. She threatens to depressurize the ship and kill herself if his men enter. <laughs> and what's his face? And Demian's like, whoa, whoa, whoa. <laughs> Actually, kinda. <laughs> we don't see it here, but later he's like, I was not prepared for that. <laughs> I don't want to die. <laughs> Pretty much. Gregorius insists he could still catch her before she died. Like, it's fine. She'll have at least 30 seconds to get in there and get her. So uh, we should call her bluff. But DeSoya is like, nope. He tries to reassure Ania that they mean her no harm. (laughs) Which, you know, mm, sure. Liar, liar, pants on fire. Yeah. Ania reasonably does not buy that. (laughs) Why would she? Maybe, come on. Exactly. So DeSoya calls off the Swiss guard and they watch as the ship makes the jump to C+. But they manage to track it again to its new destination in Renaissance Vector. So, DeSoya prepares everyone to jump there immediately, and they're going to arrive five months before Aenea will. 
So they'll have even more time to prepare. And since Renaissance Vector is a pack stronghold, he's much more confident they'll be able to capture her there. I still don't buy that they can't change their path at any point when they're going somewhere. Apparently not, Danielle. Apparently it's locked in. <laughs> it's the dumbest thing in this book so far. That. That's the dumbest thing in this book. It is. is. <laughs> what kind of space? Any kind of travel. You can't, like, you just pick your destination. You have absolutely no control over arriving there. Come on. Maybe it's like... They're all traveling through these special wormholes that are exactly in exactly a certain length or whatever. Whatever. <laughs> I'm not it's, on board. <laughs> it's very convenient is what it is. It's dumb. <laughs> I like how what you get upset about versus what I get upset about. <laughs> I just want things to make sense, Sam. Well, we're in the wrong podcast, Danielle. <laughs> you knew that going into this. Back with Rawl, he's a little disturbed by the scene that just played out, but he only asks how she knew Desoya's name. Ania says she must have overheard it at the battle at the Sphinx, but Rawl doesn't buy that either. Why would she be lying? Because maybe she is obfuscating how much communication she has with the Technocore or something. Sure. Okay. Sorry, forgot. I don't know. She's a child, but also the Messiah. She has <laughs> mysterious motives. So over the next few days, Rawl broods over how passive he's been, just letting the child do all the hard work and planning, not being much of a hero. So at least he's self-aware. That's good. Otherwise, he wouldn't be a very good hero. Yeah. Well, lots of heroes are not self-aware, I think. That's probably true. But most book characters are. Yeah. Not always. I'm just saying most. Mo, okay, sure. He's also a bit terrified by the implications of the packs having created a faster than Hawking Drive way of getting around the universe, since it means their power will be absolute, essentially. Mm -hmm. So maybe that's a plot button that'll come up later. I don't know. <laughs> but I'm including it here just question. in case. Yeah, What's sure. the point of the console ship being faster in regular travel if they know exactly where it's traveling to? Yeah, because they can't capture it while it's in Hawking space. So if they keep jumping around, there's no way for them to get the girl, I suppose. So why aren't they doing that? Because they need time to spin up to C+. They need about like 10 or 15 minutes to do that. Mm -hmm. And so it's in that window that they are in, that they're vulnerable. That they're in danger. Okay. Yeah. Still and stupid. so that's... Yeah, and so it's <laughs> that window that Desoya is hoping to exploit with the might of the entire Pax fleet, or at least a, a good portion of it at Renaissance Vector, instead of just as one ship. How do any of these wars ever come to fruition if they constantly know exactly where the next person's going to be? Danielle, boy, that's a question I do not have an answer to. <laughs> just seems like it takes everything out of anything. Nobody can escape. Surprise Nobody can, or like, strategy. Yeah, like it yeah. just seems kind of dumb. For a book plot. <laughs> yeah, it is what it is. <laughs> so anyway, most of the second trip is basically just like the first, a bunch of vignettes and conversations that I will skip mostly, except for one I want to go into detail with because it is bonkers. Mm -hmm. So one day, Rawl goes out to the balcony to find that Nia has created a giant sphere of water 10 meters across just floating there on the balcony and that she's swimming in it. She's made a spherical swimming pool in space because... Why not, right? Sure, that's, why not? <laughs> that's pretty cool, right? So she invites him to join her, and when he points out he doesn't have a swimsuit, she's all, eh, who needs it? Since she's clearly skinny dipping. Gross. This is where it gets weird. <laughs> that was already weird. Yeah. Here, Rawl takes great pains to assure us that there's nothing he finds sexually arousing about the 12-year-old messiah. <laughs> I would hope not. <laughs> Which is good. I'm like, yes, you shouldn't. But also... It's so weird because, like, the only premise here is that they will end up together sexually. We know that. Like, that's a foregone conclusion. that They are going to be a sexual couple. Mm -hmm. But that's in the future. But at this moment, he's 27 and 15 years older than her. And so this book has to do this weird tightrope walk <laughs> of trying to be like, no, no, no. He doesn't find her sexually attractive, but he will, and it'll be totally fine. <laughs> That's what Simmons gets for writing himself into this corner. Yeah, yeah, exactly. So I'm like, this is just like, this is such a weird, self-imposed problem Simmons has created for himself, which I feel like unnecessarily. He's <laughs> like, no, it's not creepy. I promise you it's not creepy. And it's like, the more you say it's not creepy, the less I'm like convinced it's not creepy. <laughs> Anyway, I just had to point that out because it was like, oh, I, I felt uncomfortable with that whole scene. <laughs> That's fair. Anyway, the rest of the trip is not that interesting, but there are a few details that may be plot relevant, so I'm just going to put them out here now. So just that in case. we Just in case. That's what we do here. <laughs> That's what Sam does with uh, Hyperion. It just throws out any special details just in case. <laughs> See what sticks to the wall, Danielle. <laughs> 
We should have kept a list so that later we could have gone back and like, well, that never came back and that never came back and that never came back. Listeners, if you want to go back and index all the details I included just because maybe and see how like what ratio, like 50% success rate, 20% success rate, I would believe any number, honestly, at this point. That'd be great. You could just make it up. We wouldn't know. Yeah. I mean, true. (laughs) So during a brief discussion, Rawl asks Abetic if he thinks Ania would really have killed them all back there with... You know, the encounter with the Soya? Yes. And Bedek says he thinks she would have if she were alone, but that she couldn't choose to hurt them as well. No, I think she would totally do it if it served the larger purpose of whatever she's trying to go after. I think what a Bedek is trying to convey here is that she's an extremely compassionate person. Sure. I don't disagree with that, but I think this is like kind of a trolley problem. <laughs> yeah, exactly. <laughs> I think she would. <laughs> Well, if it saved a million people on a planet to kill everybody in space, she'd do it. <laughs> a Bedek insists that she wouldn't. So I don't know. I don't know who's a better judge of her character. I'll show that. He could be equally as wrong. I don't know. <laughs> I'm not saying she's not compassionate. I'm just saying I think she has some kind of larger purpose. So if she saw that that larger purpose was her served larger by- purpose, Danielle, is to be an architect. That's not that big a purpose. No <laughs> well, offense to architects an architect. out there. It's not life or death. It's not like save the universe to be an architect. You don't I'm sorry. know if she's a messiah architect. Like clearly, her architecture is vitally important. Sam, I mean. The parallel is obvious between her being an architect and the idea of, you know, Jesus being a carpenter. Sure. Craftsman messiahs, basically. <laughs> a special kind of a messiah. Yeah. I mean, cool, I guess. They're You're worth blue a collar. little bit more money. <laughs> yeah. It's gone from blue collar worker to <laughs> a white collar architect. You know what it really is? I got it, Daniel. This is the 90s book, right? Remember, mm-hmm. all rom-coms, one of the characters has to be a, an architect. An architect. It's true. That's, I think this is fulfilling that brief. Excellent. <laughs> this is just serendipity, the book. There's probably a small business owner running around too, or a doctor. <laughs> a doctor who just needs to understand what love is and stop working <laughs> so hard. I would love to see a rom-com version of Hyperion. <laughs> I'd watch that. Yeah. We just have to wait for the TV show to come out and then we can redo the yeah, trailer. Yeah, with it's never going to come music. out, Danielle. <laughs> The Hyperion TV show is definitely going to come out someday. I believe that. <laughs> Why not? Sure. Let's see. So anyway, Rawl also gets a bracelet from the ship that's a comm log to communicate with the ship when he's out and about. But also the ship downloads his data banks into the bracelet so that he can still have access to all of the knowledge of the ship when he's out of range of the ship. That's helpful. So I'm fairly certain that's going to be a big use later. You hope so. I mean, if it's not, then we wasted a lot of time on it. <laughs> I mean, it's Simmons. It, it may just be wasted time, Sam. There's like a, a solid 30% chance. Speaking of wasted time, this next section, Danielle. <laughs> Roll raids the ship's armory for a bunch of guns. And so much time is spent here describing the gun collection and how, quote, some of us, the Kongton I among the few, had learned to treasure beautiful handmade or limited production guns, which is some real pretentious gun nuttery right there, I tell you. It definitely is. He then continues to describe a plasma rifle as shooting bolts of pure energy, but that the cartridges did benefit from the barrel's rifling before they volatilized, so the term rifle wasn't entirely a misnomer, which is Crazy, since plasma is not pure energy, and it shows how much Dan Simmons cares way more about, like, the accuracy of the guns and the rifling term, like, being applied to a gun that has rifling, than to the science accuracy or anything else. Well, to be fair, maybe he knew way more about guns, and there wasn't really an internet, so he probably had encyclopedia knowledge about plasma. Uh I'm just saying, (laughs) this is clearly Dan Simmons' personal politics coming into here. Again, there's been some libertarian sprinklings throughout this book, and this feels like more of that. (laughs) I don't know what Dan Simmons' political leanings are. I don't really care. It just, that is amusing. (laughs) Anyway, this goes on for pages, him describing all the guns, which one Rawl decides to take, despite them being useless against the Swiss Guard's armor. He even mentions a forest assault rifle that may have belonged to Kassad. Like his infamous gun that Why he used he in the Battle this? of the Shrike. No, no, no idea. No reason. <laughs> okay. I think part of it is like, hey, remember the previous book? Here's a bunch of connections. And part of it, he just really likes describing guns, apparently. 
It's a hobby of his. Finally, it ends with Rolla taking an old forty-five, probably Braun Lamia's same gun. And I mean, Lamia says it matches his outfit. So there you go. <laughs> well, then it must be his. Uh, I mean, couldn't you just take anything old out of there and be like, this was probably from the original Pilgrims. I'm exactly how, right. How this, is, this is what this feels like. Because like, oh, this is the console ship. So he knew them all personally. So probably he saved a few keepsakes. But anyway, when Ania says it matches his outfit, all I can think about is that tricorn hat he still hasn't worn yet. <laughs> Chekhov's tricorn hat. If that hat does not come back in a major way, I'll be so upset they wasted so much time on it. <laughs> also, I want to imagine a guy dressed up like in a tricorn hat, wielding a forty-five, trying to fight the Shrike. <laughs> I'm here for it. Yeah. That's Wild Wild West it with a tricorn hat. There you go. So lastly, after music time one day, where Ania plays the piano and Apetek plays the flute, they discuss what they're going to do at Renaissance Vector. Play more music. Yeah, just play music and and let the world burn, like Nero. Is Renaissance Victor where they're waiting the pe- other yes. people? Okay. So Renaissance Victor used to be a massive manufacturing hub in the hegemony days, made most of the ships of the fleet. And its capital is called, what do you think? Endymion. Hyperion. <laughs> no. <laughs> its name is Renaissance Victor. Take a guess. Uh, Keatsville. No. Keatslandia? Think more obvious than that. Keatsylvania. <laughs> <laughs> Renaissance land. Keep thinking. I'll give you two more guesses. Uh, uh, <laughs> stuff in Renaissance. Turkey legs. Nope. <laughs> um, Not turkey legs, the capital of Renaissance Vector. <laughs> Horse poop on the ground. <laughs> no, it's called Da Vinci, Danielle. Oh, that makes sense, sort of. <laughs> yeah, because it's clearly settled by Red Fair nerds. <laughs> I was going in that direction. I probably would have gotten there eventually. Yeah, maybe. <laughs> I don't know. I think after a horse on the ground, you were out of ideas. <laughs> I really was. Yeah. You threw me off when you said I had two more, and then my brain went blank. A little pressure always does good work. <laughs> anyway, Renaissance Vector is also a central world for the packs. So they're like, this is going to be very difficult to escape from there because it's full of pack ships. So Aeneas says her plan, such as it is, is to... Go see the river Tethys to find the architect her dreams told her about, who has a building on the river somewhere. And her plan to evade the pack is just to tell them the truth, that she wants to land on the planet, and then they'll figure things out from there. <laughs> I'm sure that'll totally work. Yup. Meanwhile, DeSoya is having dreams about Aenea every night for the 142 days while they wait for them to arrive. Is her plan really just to, like, settle down and then hope that they're gonna let her go? Danielle? Oh, boy. <laughs> <laughs> Do we get to it in this plot? We will see their escape plan in this section for Excellent. once. <laughs> so the gist of the dreams that Desoya is having is that Ania is his daughter, most uh-huh. usually, and they're walking through the streets of Renaissance Vector. Is he Keats? Just, no. Oh, maybe. <laughs> maybe. I don't know. I, I really hope not. I mean, if it's his daughter and she's at, like, all the Keats are her dad. I think, I think it's more, or, like, like, the Venn diagram here is that all Keatses are her father, but not all of her fathers are Keatses. No. <laughs> I just, no. <laughs> I think it's like a father in the, like, we're all children of, you know, humanity no. or whatever. <laughs> Hard pass. We're no longer doing Endymion. <laughs> I didn't make that up. I have no idea. I think it's just a metaphor, Danielle. I'm mad about it already. <laughs> <laughs> So they're walking through the streets of Renaissance Vector discussing DeSoya's older sister Maria, who's in the hospital there. He and his family originally came from a small farming planet that was resistant to the Cruciform and the Newfangled Church. They were like a different sect of Catholicism. They were resistant as in they didn't want to be part of it. Yes. They weren't like resistant as in incapable of taking the Cruciform. No, they were not like allergic to the prayer site. <laughs> I don't know how all this works. No, that'd be funny though. <laughs> But a plague called the Red Death, which caused bleeding stigmata because, of course, amongst other things, swept through the community, and his sister got sick. So, first off, Red Death, Edgar Allan Poe would like a word with you. (laughs) I didn't know we were throwing Poe into the mix. (laughs) Apparently so. Anyway, they brought her to Da Vinci to get help, but the only way to save her was the cruciform. And the doctors insisted that DeSoy and his family first convert before they would give Maria the cruciform. Oh, God, I hate the church. <laughs> yeah, and this book is pretty terrible. 
<laughs> so they do, but sadly, Maria died mere hours before she was scheduled to receive the new the, the cruciform parasite. Oh, so annoying. Yeah. So they're like, oh, we can save your daughter, but first you must convert and take on this parasite. And then we'll give it. You could just give it to her first and let them convert after. Apparently not. Nope. That's not how it works, Sam. Nope. Guess they're terrible. So DeSoya's father thought, oh, this must be a sign that God has punished me and our community for our previous rejection of this new faith and zealously converts the rest of the community. That's funny. I was going to ask if that was an issue. Nope. He's like, on board. <laughs> No, I meant that I wondered if they felt like it was, or if maybe the church thought that it was their fault for not converting in the first place. Like it was, that was the blame. Yeah, they get, they blame themselves basically for this, which is ridiculous. Anyway, in his dream, he's talking with Ania about saving his Ooh, sister. Question. And how, Sorry. Okay. Sure. Um, the conversion. Does conversion count if you're doing it for the wrong reasons? <laughs> does it matter? Do you think religion? I don't care? know. I'm curious. <laughs> I mean, if you take the parasite and say the words and, you know, tithe one tenth year every one year, every 10 years, whatever it is to the church. I, mean, I don't think logistically the church cares, but I'm curious if some kind of all powerful God would care that the reason why you did it was completely selfish and Danielle, not related to the religion at all. <laughs> Danielle, I'm extremely unqualified to comment on what some <laughs> hypothetical God would think about this is not, this book doesn't care about a hypothetical <laughs> God. This cares about the gods that exist in this book. I'm sorry. I've been watching too much of The Good Place and so now I'm, I'm thinking too hard. <laughs> yeah, no, Danielle, please. That's a good question for actual religions. Our goofy-ass <laughs> podcast is not equipped to handle those questions, all right? Hey, we're doing the deep things, okay? Mm. The podcast <laughs> talks about deep stuff. <laughs> <laughs> badly. podcast badly discusses deep topics. That could be our tagline. It could be our second podcast. <laughs> Get right on that. Because we, we could really do another one, I'm sure. <laughs> we can do as many as we want, Sam. We just may not have lives outside of the podcast. Yeah, you can edit that one. Thank you. <laughs> Long as we keep it short. Anyway, DeSoya is in the dream talking with Ania about saving his sister and how he found the secret to saving her. But it's not, as he assumes would awake, the cruciform, but rather returning to Maria a little porcelain unicorn, sure. which he can't find. Why not? Yeah. But finally, Ania speaks for the first time in the dreams, pulling the unicorn figurine from her pocket saying, you see, we had it with us the entire time. It's a metaphor. Which is as subtle as a bag of hammers. <laughs> Yeah, it's a metaphor, Danielle. Thank you for clarifying that. You're welcome. Just thought I'd throw my two cents in I there. Can, I didn't figure that part out. The, the dream was a metaphor. <laughs> Just because you figured it out doesn't mean I have it figured out. It I don't understand true, half of Hyperion, so. That's fine. No one does. <laughs> anyway, during the daytime when he's not asleep, DeSoya oversees the return of the rest of the fleet from Hyperion and starts to organize the fleet to capture Aenea. So is he having the same dream over and over, or different dreams no, with her? No, it's like a series of narratives. Like it's like a, it's one story, I think, told over multiple dreams or okay. something, or like a recurring dream that that gets you a little bit more every time. So he really likes his dreams. Actually, all of our fantasy sci-fi likes its dreams. Remember Lord of the Skies or whatever? Yeah, yeah. There's a lot of that and, and uh, Fool on the Hill, Boatland, Boatland, What's Lord Boatland? of the Skies. <laughs> Oh, Lord of the Skies, yes. Boat of the Skies, thank you. There were a lot of dreams in there that didn't mean anything. <laughs> yep, yep, I remember that. That was a while ago. I guess people just like dreams. It's weird how we know everyone hates hearing about everyone else's dreams, but then how many authors are putting dream discussions in their books? That's because anything fantasy sci-fi gets like futuristic dreams. That's how you find out the future. Sure. It's all or past. prophetic dreams. Mm -hmm. Maybe this don't have a prophecy in your in your story. That'd be a way to go. That's that's a hard sell for a fantasy. Why? There's no problem. <laughs> you don't need the prophecy. There's always a prophecy. It's a crutch. <laughs> what was the last time you read something sci-fi fantasy-ish that didn't have a prophecy in it? Especially fantasy. Um, I can think of a few things. But you can think of way more than prophecies. Yeah. yeah I mean, that's not, I'm, not saying, okay, I'm not saying they don't do that. I'm saying they shouldn't do that. <laughs> you can have a prophecy if you want to. I mean, fine, but I believe you can do better. I, I believe in authors. I believe in their creativity. <laughs> anyway. Sorry. Sidetracked. So DeSoy expects that he'll be relieved of duty due to his past failures to capture Aenea, but nope, he's told to keep on doing what he's doing, that he has total authority. Doing a good job, buddy. Excellent work. He also has a bag of personal effects returned to him that he had left behind when he was first reassigned. Amongst them is the unicorn figurine. <sighs> it's a metaphor. <laughs> <laughs> it's a tangible metaphor. 
No, no, no. It's a unicorn figurine. <laughs> it's special. It's unique. It's something. Does it come back later? I certainly hope so. I hope not. <laughs> It'd be much funnier if it didn't. Wasted all this time. I always hope the stuff he brings up doesn't actually come back because it's funnier that way. I mean. And we have a solid chance it does not. There's a real chance in these books. I think you and I could write a prank book, Danielle, where we're like, <laughs> we in a book that just like is there to annoy the reader by having them read a bunch of stuff that doesn't matter. <laughs> I've read a couple. I mean, I've read maybe one or two books like that, and they're very funny. They are fun. Anyway, finally, Roll, Ania, and Apedic arrive in Renaissance Vector and are immediately surrounded by dozens of ships. They're told to slow down and prepare for boarding, but Ania broadcasts back and warns them to not try and stun the ship or board it because that would knock out the ship's AI, which is hegemony error and therefore is organic base. It has the DNA, CPU, blah, 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 some techno babble stuff. So they can't knock out the ship? Because if they try to stun the humans or people in the ship, they'll also knock out the ship's computer, and that would cause the AI-controlled containment fields to collapse, which would pulverize everything on board because the speeds they're traveling. They'll no longer have any, like, Got compensation it. for their acceleration. So she's like, hey, don't tamper with our ship because you'll kill us all. So it's basically the same gambit again. Right. But that sounds I mean, like BS that, to me. Is that true every time they are doing this? Because, how, again, you're at a stalemate. Yes. Yeah, again, it feels – well, if you want to catch them alive, it's a stalemate. Yeah, but they do. Yeah. <laughs> At least as of right now. Yeah, this sounds like BS to me. Or maybe they would like – maybe she's lying. I don't know. Because it sounds like a dumb feature where like, oh, if the AI has a glitch, everyone on board dies. Do you think there would be some redundant backup systems that would keep people from turning to paste on the walls if there was ever a problem? No. It's just you put your life in the AI's hands every single time you go on your ship. Ridiculous. But <laughs> nobody in this era knows any better, especially since AIs are, you know, taboo. Yeah, maybe they don't know about the backup systems. Well, the point is, is that DeSoya and the rest buy this, and he tells everyone to hold position. Did they not know about this beforehand, or they just find out about it from any They don't, again, the whole topic of AIs is heresy. So they're just agreeing, they, like, they're just assuming she's telling the truth. Right, exactly. Okay, sure. They know that organic computers existed, and that chips like that use organic computers. They don't know if the stun weapons would actually knock out the AI computer, or if it failed, what would happen to the people inside. Mm -hmm. But he's not willing to risk it because and he is like hey we just want to land at the spaceport guess the name of the spaceport danielle the name of the spaceport yeah the da vinci's spaceport what's the name of the spaceport in da vinci uh mona lisa <laughs> <laughs> nope more obvious than that more obvious than that <laughs> yeah yeah i don't i don't know <laughs> It's Leonardo. The spaceport is Leonardo. Oh, yeah. Okay. That maybe is more <laughs> obvious than Mona Lisa. The spaceport Leonardo in the city of Da Vinci. Come on, guys. <laughs> Nerds with no creativity. <laughs> anyway, so just so he's like, sure, if you just want to land, that's fine. We can capture you there. He's like, I'd rather just not risk it. So as the ship approaches the spaceport, it suddenly changes direction, starts drifting out over the city. They don't want to shoot it down, lest they risk destroying the city and killing a bunch of people. Totally fair. So they follow it. Eventually, it drifts over the portion of the river Tethys that's on this planet and towards the dead Farcaster Gate. So apparently, the rivers still have water in them, despite no longer being connected in an actual flowing river. And the Farcaster portals are made of materials that are virtually indestructible. So nothing they could have done would destroy them. So they're still standing. So the rivers are still flowing between all the planets? No, the portals are off. They just stop? The what happens with the water? Great question, Danielle. I have no answer. <laughs> that seems like nonsense. <laughs> Maybe they're now the Lake Tethys. The, the many lakes Tethys. <laughs> See, like an entire – it would be like a whole biological disaster. <laughs> Yeah, yeah, exactly. And the rivers are still flowing on the other planets. I have no idea how they're flowing if they're not flowing through the Farcaster portals. It's just the arches are still there, but no portal. Like yeah, the they're physical not flowing structure. then. They're just stationary. But they are flowing. We'll get to it. The river is still flowing. It doesn't make any sense, Sam. <laughs> yes, yeah, so I don't know how the river is still running without the portals open. Maybe there's a bypass. I don't know. Whatever. If, or there's pumps. Maybe there are pumps and they circulate it. It, it feels like nonsense to me, though. <laughs> Dear Mr. Simmons, <laughs> I have questions. Yeah. Can you imagine like going up to Simmons at like a sci-fi convention and bothering him? Like, can you tell me how the River Tethys still flowed in Endymion? <laughs> I'm sure he gets weird questions like that because I feel like all authors probably get really weird questions like that. Yeah. Anyway, so they're heading towards the Farcaster portal and suddenly the air in the portal arch begins to shimmer. 
as the portal starts to come to life. DeSoya realizes what's happened and orders his ship to blast the portal from space, which kicks up a tremendous cloud of steam from the river, and they lose sight of the ship. Aha, uh-huh. they lose. When it's done, they don't know if the ship sank or escaped through the portal or was incinerated. It seemed like a bad idea. Anyway, the portal is no longer on, but it's still standing because, again, indestructible material. How did they get the portal to work? Boy, we'll get to that. Okay. <laughs> DeSoya orders that they search the river immediately to try to find the ship. Well, if it disintegrated, you won't find it. <laughs> yeah, they won't. They find nothing after several days. And DeSoya is to be subject to a board of review. And once again, he fully expects to be court-martialed or at the very least relieved of duty. Poor DeSoya. Sort of, but not really. Yep. But although he has failed to capture the girl for a third time... He is once again told that he could never have anticipated a forecast report working again, so he remains in control with complete and total authority. That seems questionable. <laughs> I, I do not disagree. <laughs> his plan is to take Gregorius and the rest of the Swiss Guard, his his three compatriots, uh, his squad, and hunt down the girl by traveling to every one of the 200-plus world the River Tethys goes through. Road trip! Basically, yeah. Yeah! So, it'll take a little under two years, he says, to search them all, which is a lot of times to die and be resurrected. So, there's another metaphor there, I'm sure. We needed a good Hyperion road trip. <laughs> but also, this assumes that Aenea stays on whatever planet she ends up on and doesn't, you know, take the ship and fly off somewhere else, which is a dumb assumption to spend two <laughs> years searching for. Yeah, it seems like a terrible plan. It is a terrible plan. But speaking of Aenea, Rolla recounts how they did pass through the Farcaster portal, basically underwater. So they basically were pushed under the water and had the ship going submarine mode through the portal. What? Was the portal on? How did they yeah. turn the portal on? Danielle, please, we'll get to that. Okay. Maybe. <laughs> maybe. <laughs> so they're through the portal and they run aground on the bank of a river on, uh, on some new planet. So they basically go to the portal and they, they crash. The ship is heavily damaged and will need about six months to repair itself. So they all climb out onto the little beach and Rawl takes in the first new planet he's ever visited. It's full of a dense jungle with trees the author insists on calling, and only calling, gymnosperms. No. <laughs> that is it. <laughs> he's like, gymnosperms this and gymnosperms that. I'm like, can't call them like palm trees or something. You gotta be a different... All right, fine. So uh, Ania suggests that they go ahead without the ship. They just need to go down the stream to find the next portal, and they can return to the ship later by looping back around since the river is a giant loop through all the different planets. Mm-hmm. Rawl is like, hey, uh, can you activate the portal again? How did you do it the first time? And Ania says she can, and although she's not sure how she does it, quote, I knew from the dreams that the portal would probably let me through. I thought it would recognize me, and it did. And Raw was all, it's something you mean the Farcaster is a living, intelligent organism when you talk like that. And Nia says, yeah, in a way, it is a living, intelligent organism. Boo. So that's where we're at, Danielle. <laughs> we have the living Farcaster network that is attuned to Nia and is letting her through. For, no. Yep. Yep. That is the answer. That's how she did it. No. Magic, magic connection to the Farcaster entity thing. This section's making me angry. <laughs> <laughs> Finally, we're getting to the good stuff. Anyway, they have no idea where they are in terms of which planet or how far the next Farcaster portal is since they could be a few miles or hundreds of miles down the river and there are multiple sections sometimes on the same planet and there are multiple sections sometimes on the same planet where the river like goes through one planet, goes to another one, comes back or something like that and, and all the planets are randomized. So every time you go through a portal, it takes you a random output from the portal. Like you don't always go to the same order. So what's the plan in finding Aenea if she's nowhere near her ship? Yup. You mean for DeSoya? Yeah, for DeSoya. This plan is not, it is no plan. (laughs) No plan. Just going to wander around and hope they could find a literal needle in a haystack. They're going to go to every planet in the old web that the River Tethys goes through and hope that they just stumble across her on them. (laughs) Young girl. (laughs) Maybe with her ship. As far as they know, she still has her ship. Right, but if she just... Which means it's even less likely to find her since she could just zoom off to any other planet. Yeah, crazy. It's a dumb plan, Danielle, but guess what? (laughs) It's going to (laughs) work. I'm almost certain it's going to work. Oh, yeah. There's no plot if they don't ever find her. What is evident, though, is that this current planet, there is no sign of the technology that can be detected here. It's a totally either primitive or uninhabited planet. Mm-hmm. Also, apparently, they can't just use the portal they're near and like go back through it and have it take it somewhere else. Since the Tethys portals are different in some way from all the other forecaster portals, that is a plot-convenient way of being different. <laughs> 
They're like, they have to go to the next portal. They can't just go yeah. back to the same portal. That doesn't make any sense because that's not how portals work. Yeah, no, apparently the Tethys portals are one-way portals that take you to a random destination. And despite her magic connection to the entity of the Farcaster network, Ania cannot change that or reprogram them. It's not a software thing. It's a, like a fundamental nature. I don't know. It's a plot convenient reason is all that's it is. <laughs> just crazy. So they decide to split up and have Abedic stay behind to gather supplies while Rawl and Ania take the hawking mat downriver to scout for the next portal. As they follow the river, they spot some structure, a man-made thing poking through the jungle. Is it the architecture? Nope. Person? They need to a briefly <laughs> to look at it. Raw thinks he sees something moving inside the structure, but then they break off and turn to the river, so it's probably irrelevant. <laughs> He's like, who cares? Yep. As they go down the river, some large creature follows them from under the water, uh, but they lose it after passing a waterfall. So the river, still flowing. Just, just how? They don't find the portal and decide to break off and head back before it gets dark. As they're heading back, they get a call from Abedic on Rawl's comm log bracelet, which has apparently been streaming their whole trip back to the ship so Abedic could watch. But now Abedic is calling to inform them that they have a visitor. Guess who it is? Uh, Martin Salinas. No. Uh, the, the, the ship. The ship? The, yeah, Keats. Severn. <laughs> not, not, not a Keats. It's uh, DJ Shrike here for a private uh, show. I can't believe I didn't guess that first. All right. So that's where we're going to leave for now. The Shrike is showing up. They've escaped the packs on a mysterious planet and nobody has any idea what's going to happen. We're going to have a party tonight. DJ Shrike is in the house. Yep. There's going to be a real, a real humdinger of a party. <laughs> well, hopefully it doesn't kill all of her new friends. Eh, with DJ Shrike, <laughs> you can never tell. <laughs> they're dangerous parties, but they're fun. <laughs> that was the best part of you, Danielle. <laughs> so there you go. That's Endymion Part 3. We're halfway oh, through. Wow. These are going much faster than the other Hyperions. Uh, yeah. Again, less plot, but it seems to make you angrier than the previous Hyperions, <laughs> which is fun. That's not necessarily true. <laughs> I just don't like measure. the things he's choosing to not explain. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. It is a real choice he's making. Like, this feels way more like... Uh, just it feels hand me, wavy. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> like, he's like so detailed in the other books about absolutely everything. And that's what he's like, just go with it. <laughs> this this one feels way more, like I said, like a philosophy book than a science fiction book. That's okay. So he's allowed to do choice. whatever he wants. He's yeah, he is. <laughs> and you're going to have to hear about it, Danielle. <laughs> <sighs> okay. Well, we're halfway through. Yay. Yeah. yeah I'm too excited. <laughs> I am. By the time we record the next one, I won't remember this at all. Well, we knew that from the start, Danielle. I did pretty good. This, this you did time. pretty well. Again, this will have a lot more for you to remember in this in this section. That's true. The plot has finally started, kind Fingers of. Fingers crossed. I will recall this eight months from now. <laughs> this book also has a lot of weird repetition. Like, it does the thing where, like, oh, they're traveling, traveling, traveling. Oh, there's a brief second where they have to escape from. So, oh, they're traveling, traveling, traveling. A brief second where they escape from this way. Like, mm -hmm. I don't know, it's kind of hard to differentiate those two sections, so we'll see how it goes from there. Looking forward to it. I'm sure you are, but you can't wait. Cannot wait. <laughs> to have even less explained as more things are revealed. You know what else I can't wait for, Sam? What? Our Winter Bazaar. Oh, okay. <laughs> what, are you, you gotta get a plan for that? No, not at all. It's gonna be great. Perfect. <laughs> all right. Well, be sure to listen for that. And if you want to suggest a movie for our Winter Bazaar or book, whatever, we're easy, you can reach out to us at bookretorts.com. You can also tweet Instagram or Facebook us at bookretorts. And if you want to fund our research into the philosophical questions that Danielle brought up in this episode about <laughs> the nature of faith and how faithful your faith has to be <laughs> and genuine, then you can fund the Book Retorts Philosophical Institute at our Patreon at patreon.com slash bookretorts. Um, we can all watch together The Good Place, which I feel like pretty much sums it up. <laughs> <laughs> oh, okay. Well, I guess we've solved religion, everybody. Just watch The Good Place. All of humanity's questions are answered. I mean, kind of. <laughs> all right. Well, until next time, when going to a party with DJ Shrike, always bring your bubble wrap suit. I mean, yes. <laughs> Not a terrible idea. Yeah, play it safe. Until then, bye. Take care, everybody.
Hello. <laughs> what are you making a, a hacking noises for? Are you Hello? trying to do a hairball? No, I just made no noise. That was the noise that came out of my mouth. It was a choice. <laughs> you know, the more weird noises you make, the more they're going in the episode. <laughs> <laughs> I'm used to that. If I had a problem with that, it wouldn't have been three years of a stupid podcast. <laughs> And you can you continually decide to provide me an unending wealth of mindable material. Well, it's all day long, Sam. It's not like it's only for the podcast that I make weird noises. <laughs> yeah, I would love to hear recorded Danielle just sitting there watching me going. You've heard a lot of my weird noises off, even off of the podcast. 